Things have changed since the Equal Pay Act was passed 60 years ago, but maybe not as much as you'd think. The bottom line, women are still making less money than men overall. Women workers, on average, earn 82 cents for every dollar men earn. That disparity is even wider for black and Latino women. Now, some progress was made on this front in the 80s and 90s, but since then, well, the numbers haven't budged much, according to a new Pew Research Center analysis. So today we're going to dig into the reasons behind this and we'll ask, how can we get rid of this glass ceiling and why do we still have one? Joining us now is Sharmili Majmudar, the Executive Vice President of Policy and Organizational Impact at Women Employed. Welcome, Sharmili. Thank you. And Felicia Davis-Blakely is here, President and CEO of the Chicago Foundation for Women, or CFW. Good to see you, Felicia. Good to see you. So, Sharmili, as I mentioned, we're going to talk more in depth later on about that Pew analysis. But help us sort of set the scene here. Progress, as I mentioned, it's narrowing. Uh, In narrowing this gender gap, it's really slowed in recent years. Are you surprised by that at all? Not really. I mean, the the gender wage gap was definitely exacerbated by COVID. So I think we have to take that into account. The pandemic had a disproportionate impact on women and particularly women of color and those in low paid roles uh, like hospitality, which was deeply affected by the pandemic and are really clawing back um, as well. Um, But we had already started off with women being economically vulnerable before the pandemic. And really what was exposed was how deeply the structural inequalities were present and weren't really able to hold women up. Um, So we still have to make progress with the labor force and it's a it's a multifaceted issue that requires multifaceted solutions. Yeah. Felicia, the fact that we haven't made much progress, what does that say to you? You know, I think we really would have to look at some of the um, kind of persistent issues that have plagued women. So there is a clear and persistent gender bias. Um, the other thing that comes up when you look in the analyses are the racial um, biases that come up as well. So we have to think about the way in which implicit bias, I mean, there's been a lot of conversations, there have been a lot of conversations around racial equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, particularly after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, and many corporations stepped up to say they're hiring personnel and staff to work on these issues. Mm-hmm. And we also see today um, in recent news reports that those positions are are, are, are being eliminated. And so the other piece, um, I agree with what Sharmili has said, the other piece really is just being honest and having an unvarnished truth about the biases, the implicit bias on gender and race. Sharmili, how does Chicago compare to, to national data and trends? So Chicago isn't all that different. Um, We worked on a report with the Mayor's Women's Advisory Council and World Business Chicago and the Civic Consulting Alliance and Women Employed that really looked at what the impact was of the pandemic on women, but also what was the situation even before then. And what you see are these persistent wage gaps, um, very, you know, not much progress has been made since the 80s, as you alluded to, and that there's also this issue of occupational segregation that we really have to address, which is the disproportionate representation of women in lower paid jobs 
and the overrepresentation of men in higher paid jobs. Occupational segregation. Interesting. Uh, according to a study done last March, Felicia, young women that's under 30, under the age of 30, they earn at least as much as young men in 22 metro areas across the country. In Chicago and surrounding areas, though, women make 90 to 99 percent of men's median earnings. Overall, though, the uh, gender wage gap is the widest in the Midwest. So what do you think is happening in Chicago that perhaps isn't happening in other parts of the Midwest to uh, make the, the gap more narrow? You know, I, I am, so part of that is that those statistics particularly point to young women who are early in their careers. And so let's say we're fresh out of college, you know, women are graduating um, in college degrees at every level mm-hmm. at higher rates than men. So they're possibly coming in more qualified. So it's interesting that they're just kind of at parity and they may also actually be overqualified. Um, but then what happens, it's what happens later in our careers. It, it is what happens as, as you we know, age, as, we age mm-hmm. as those um, inequities start to add up. You know, in Illinois, we have, you can't ask a woman what her prior salary was. But what had happened over time is that women, they start off, you may be equitable. And then as things go on, you start to slip. There's wage and salary compression. And so as you age, as parenthood comes into play throughout the life of a woman's career, those that parent, that parent penalty mm-hmm. is significant. And we still haven't touched upon the fact that overwhelmingly in our country, child care responsibilities and caregiving responsibilities fall to women. Mm. So it, 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 it is interesting, at least, that at the start of careers, we're seeing a narrowing of that, of that, gen, of that gender pay gap. Um, but the data will tell us over time it continues to expand. Yeah. And Shirley, as, as Felicia mentioned there, there's a, a law that makes it illegal for employers to ask how much applicants made in their previous or their current role. Make it clear for us, why was telling uh, employers that information harmful? Well, essentially, it compounds the wage gap over time. So if your current salary is being based on a previous salary, Um, then the gap that you were facing in the previous salary just carries over into the current salary. And then that continues through the lifetime um, of a woman's career. So by saying, don't ask about previous salary, because frankly, it's not relevant, um, and instead base your salary offer on the skills and qualifications for the job, um, then we are making some progress. And there's actually some great research to show that women and people of color have really benefited from similar salary history bans across the country. Yeah, um, Ours, it was 2019, so it's a relatively recent law. But I think it points to the ways that policy really can have an impact on the gender wage gap. It's not a silver bullet, um, but it can make a quick impact. And if we use policy, practice, and culture together, we really can close the gap, but we can't just use one. Yeah. As we talk about policy, I know that you have personally been working uh, in the city on this issue for for some time. Uh, Talk more about your group, Women Employed, and and the the focus of your organization. So Women Employed is an advocacy organization. We're actually celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. Um, And we've been working on issues of economic justice for women since 1973. 
So our focus has really been more recently, however, on the needs of Black and Latinx women and women in low-paid roles and looking at how it is that we build women's economic power in order to close the wage gap and the wealth gap that exists at the intersection of race and gender. What work has the, the Chicago Foundation for Women done on, on the gender wage gap, Felicia? So uh, CFW, we are a community foundation. So if you think about the Chicago Community Trust, which really looks at the city as a whole, our um, purview um, are women. So we take and we apply a gender lens to every policy practice. Um, we are always asking the question, how does that impact women and girls? And so in the life of the organization, we've provided $45 million to organizations like Women Employed and others to support their work, to support their advocacy, so that the laws are changed. And also, we sat at tables with policymakers and, and grassroots organizations, right, trying to take the wisdom from grassroots organizations and spread that up to the policy level is really important because often um, those who are closer to the issues, the women who are the ones trying to piece it together with two, mm-hmm. you know, two or three jobs, those women actually know the solutions that work. And those are the types of laws that we should be advocating. Yeah. And those are the types of laws we work with women employed to implement. Are there things companies can do? To address this issue? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There are a number of things that companies can do. Obviously, we talked about salary and entry-level salaries coming in the door. Um, We also need to have a whole suite of workplace policies that really support women throughout the lifespan of their career, early career entrance and also later in their career that provide opportunities for women to do on-ramps and off-ramps as Still today, you know, women, uh, childbearing age, if you are having children, there should be parental leave for both parents, not just for the person who may become pregnant and have the child, but also providing for adoption and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be safety. I just I want to reiterate this because, you know, there was a, women um, need to be safe from sexual harassment. They want the same thing that men want at work. They want to be able to go to work, to be um, respected for their talent and for what they bring and not have to subject themselves to unwanted advances and those types of things, yeah. right? This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, it's it's 2023 and uh, women are still feeling the effects of inequitable pay. Many women are in the workforce and pursuing higher education, but the progress of closing the pay gap is slowing down. So to learn more about the trends in Chicago, we're talking with Sharmili Majmudar of Women Employed and Felicia Davis-Blakely of the Chicago Foundation for Women, or CFW. Personally, have you felt the uh, the impacts of pay inequity in your career, Sharmili? I think so. I think in the sense that, you know, women are, are often... Um, expected to just accept what it is that they're offered. Um, And then on the flip side, told that we just need to negotiate better. Um, When there is evidence that women negotiating actually can backfire on them Mm -hmm. um, because it's not seen as aligned with the fact that they're women, they're supposed to just, you know, uh, be grateful for what, what it is that we're offered. I think also our work and the, the occupations that, we might be overrepresented in, um, including nonprofit services and health and human services are not as valued in our society. Mm. So we are, you know, I have, and I think we have seen how women's work is 
um, undervalued and undercompensated. And then, you know, adding to what Felicia was talking about in terms of parental leave and the impact of parenthood, it's not un it's not equal. So there's a motherhood penalty, but a fatherhood premium. Um, and we see that women's wages um, are negatively impacted when they have children and caregiving responsibilities. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, fathers are actually positively impacted in terms of their wages. And yeah. I think that points to what Felicia was describing is that those persistent biases and what it means to structure a workplace that truly supports everyone, um, especially caregivers, throughout their careers mm -hmm. and not just at specific points in their lives. Yeah, and we'll dig more into that motherhood versus fatherhood piece of, of this conversation because it is very important. But uh, Felicia, I'm, I'm wondering if you've got a, a personal story here. You know, yes and no. I um, spent the bulk of my career in the public sector, and so I would say I grew up um, in the Chicago Police Department. And so this is uh, uh, in, in organizations where there are unions. I will say one of the things that I absolutely knew is that I made the same amount of money as the man in the car next that was next to me, mm -hmm. right? It's all public, right? When you come in, you know how much you're going to make at every step of right. your career. And so I will say that in the public sector and um, public sector unions and unions in general have actually helped to um, address uh, some of those um, inequities. However, <laughs> there are other opportunities where I have certainly felt um, where it's, you know, you're going for something that was a merit opportunity where you're, those are the opportunities or instances where I felt that bias, the instances where I clearly knew that the things or my prohibition from a position or something like that was really relegated on my on my gender and not anything else. And mm -hmm. so those times, of course, are extremely frustrating. We've uh, we've talked about some of, of the legislative work that's that's passed so far in Illinois. But what else needs to happen? What do, what do you think? What other solutions are there? There, there are a whole host of solutions that can be implemented. One of the things I think that uh, our, both of our organizations work on really is making sure that there's representation. You know, when we work in the nonprofit sector and we work with organizations, we believe that those boards should reflect the diversity of the communities that they serve. We believe the same thing is true for organ companies, corporations, and organizations, that their boards should also reflect the full diversity of our communities, which means, you know, BIPOC people, women, um, people with disabilities. Um, otherwise, I mean, and we have seen in, corp in the corporate sector that when boards are actually more reflective and, and when the leadership of organizations is more reflective, they actually perform better. Mm. Their corporate performance is, um, 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 is actually better. And so it's, it makes the case for, for that. There are other opportunities to make improvements. Um, we still continue to have um, a lax of safety. And um, and particularly more and more now for trans women. And so one of the mm -hmm. things we have a conversation about really is moving beyond the binary. And so this, you know, gender as a construct, we have to make sure that every gender identity really, um, and particularly those that identify as female, have safety. And we continue to need some additional um, supports when it comes to um, laws there, um, mm -hmm. some stuff around health care. Mm -hmm. yep. Are there things that could be done in the short term, Charmilly? 
Absolutely. You know, the the policies that we're describing are ones that um, have both legislative avenues, but also employers can adopt these policies themselves, right? So um, we recently had a victory with the Paid Leave for All Workers Act, which is paid time off. And we're um, waiting for that to be signed by the governor. It has to be signed by the end of this month. So we're we're excited. Women's History Month. Women's History Month. (laughs) Um, And then um, we're also advocating for paid family and medical leave. Um, the paid family medical leave, because right now FMLA does not actually cover like 62% of Illinois workers. So we're actually mo- moving something through Springfield on that. And then also ending the subminimum wage, um, because the subminimum wage for tipped workers really disproportionately um, depresses the wages available to um, particularly women of color, Black mm-hmm. and Latinx women. And it is the lowest kind of paying occupation in the analysis that we had done with the city of Chicago as well. So there are there are real practices and and listen there are restaurants that pay full minimum wage. Yeah. There are organizations that offer paid family and medical leave and there are certainly places that uh, already pay already provided paid sick days and paid vacation. Mm-hmm. So these are not like new policies. It's more about the universality with which workers actually have access yeah. to them. And as we've talked about, there's this racial pay gap among women of, of, of different backgrounds. So everything that you're describing, it sounds like we're trying to make sure here that progress, any progress made, it's benefiting all women. Absolutely. Is that right? Mm-hmm. A rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Well, you know, before we let you go, I mean, it's clear that this this issue of a, a pay gap is it's extremely complex. I think you use the word Charmili. It, it's multifaceted, right? Um, it impacts people in different ways. But if there is one big picture idea that you want Chicagoans listening to us right now to take away, what would it be? You first, Charmili. Illinois is actually one of the more progressive states when it comes to the laws that are on the books related to equal pay. The problem is that a lot of people don't know about it. So we're, we're participating right now with the Illinois Department of Labor on an outreach and education campaign to make sure that everyone knows what equal pay rights are available to them um, and that the Illinois Department of Labor is also available to them um, to help with enforcement. I think the big picture is that laws are only one part of the puzzle. And we actually all have a way that we can impact the gender wage gap. We can talk about our pay with our coworkers, right? We can ask for more transparency from our employers. We can help pass laws um, as well. And we can value caregiving and caregivers um, too. I mean, many of us hire people ourselves who are taking care of kids or taking care of parents, that kind of thing. Um, we can tip well when we're at restaurants. So I think there's there the 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 big the big message is we each have the power to make change. Yeah. What are I, your final thoughts, Felicia? I echo the same thing. I mean, there are things that we advocate for at the at the level of government, um, um, corporations, and organizations. But I will say every person has the opportunity to make a pledge. I make a personal pledge, and, and the last thing that Stremuli talked about about caregiving, all of us. Every single one of us in some form or fashion has care, some kind of caregiving being provided to us or for us in some way. And because of that, there are way more 
people who are who can be impacted in this space than those who are working in government and corporations, right? And so I want everyone to think about this and make a pledge to honor and to really value that care, to not be the reason. And overwhelmingly still today, it's 2023, this care work is being provided overwhelmingly by women. Yeah. And to make a pledge to not be the reason why another woman is paid inequitably and own up to that. And if we all do that, we will certainly pushing on the policy levers that we're pushing on. But if we do that personal lever as well, we can certainly address this and lift those lower um, economic women who are in those jobs that traditionally don't have as many um, protections. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, the city of Chicago's, your home is someone's workplace ordinance is really important. And the work there, if you have a nanny or a a house cleaner, you have to give them a contract in a language of their choosing, like leveling out or trying to really put the employer-employee relationship for those employees on an equal, a more equal footing. Yeah, it starts with us. we can do a lot there. It does start with with us. us. Felicia Davis-Blakely is the president and CEO of the Chicago Foundation for Women. And Sharmili Majmudar is the executive vice president of policy and organizational impact at Women Employed. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. We're back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We've been talking about the gender pay gap, and we're going to keep that conversation going. But first, here's a bit of a riddle. In 1982, about one-fifth of employed women over 25 had a bachelor's degree. The same year, 26% of employed men had a degree. So overall, employed men were more educated than employed women, and men were getting paid more, which kind of makes sense if you think higher education equals higher wages. But things changed in 2022. Last year, 48% of employed women had a bachelor's degree, and that's compared to only 41% of men. So the tables turned. More women are now educated than men. But the pay gap between genders didn't close, at least not the way that you would think. So joining us to help answer a few questions we have about that riddle is Rakesh Kuchar. He's a senior researcher at Pew Research Center and the author of The Pew Report. Hi, welcome to Reset. Uh, thank you, Sasha. Can you tell us, first of all, how you conducted the research? Where's the data from? So the data is from a government household survey, which also serves as the official source of government uh, labor market statistics. When you read about the unemployment rate or how many people are on the job or in the workforce, all those statistics come from the same survey, which also collects data on the earnings of men and women. And um, so we use those data to look at the wage gap. And what were you looking for exactly? What did you want to study? So um, we wanted to look on the latest trends in the wage gap to see whether the there's been any change in the aftermath of the COVID-19 outbreak. We had a recession. We were have had all sorts of economic change, especially this recession was harder on women. So we just wanted to see what it's done to the wage gap and if there have been any notable shifts um, at all, or we are still looking at the same old uh, factors at play. Yeah. So I want to dig into the the role education plays in all of this. Mm -hmm. So does the gender gap decrease when women have higher level degrees? Uh, Yes and no. Um, in the sense that getting a higher degree increases your earnings, of course. And as a whole, on average, it increases the earnings of women. 
And so you do see the gender wage gap closing as a result of more women getting edu educated. However, if you look at the earnings of, say, college-educated women and compare them with the earnings of college-educated men, we see a large and persistent gap that hasn't changed at all in uh, four decades. Mm -hmm. So you said yes and no there. So it sounds like education, maybe it's not as important in closing the wage gap, or at least it, maybe it's, it's not a cause and effect scenario. So tell us what other factors are at play here. Rakesh? So there are uh, several factors at play here. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, if you look at the earnings of men and women, you're also looking at differences in occupations and differences in labor market experience. How many years have you spent in the workplace? Uh, you're looking at um, differences in, in education, as we just discussed. And over the years, we have seen convergence in the jobs that men and women do. We have seen convergence in how much experience they have in the workplace. And that definitely helped reduce the gender wage gap in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, but these, this convergence in occupations and in labor market experience, this has slowed or flattened out. So women continue to be overrepresented in some occupations and underrepresented in some other occupations, uh, such as STEM occupations. Mm -hmm. So there are these differences in the workplace that remain. And then there are factors outside of the workplace, uh, which you may broadly call uh, social and cultural norms, which uh, continue to drive the gender wage gap. One of these is parenthood. Who is responsible for taking care of uh, children at mm -hmm. home? And generally, family needs. Who takes time off when there's somebody at home who is sick? It uh, could be an elderly person, could be a child. And we see that women tend to do more of that. These trade-offs between family and work, uh, women tend to lean to family, and men tend to lean to work. Yeah. As they have kids, they lean in, so to speak, into the workplace. They work more hours and uh, are more active in the labor force. Interesting. So these are decisions made at the individual level, uh, family level, which drive opposing trends for men and women. Let, let's zoom in a bit more on, on what we're seeing as, as male workers enter those fatherhood years, right? Is their pay mm -hmm. also dipping at that point? And if you can also just explain what the fatherhood premium is, that would be great. Right. So um, historically, we used to see two things happen with parenthood. Uh, one was women's or mother's pay, let's uh, specifically, went down compared with the pay of women who had no young children at home. This was known as the motherhood child penalty uh, or motherhood wage penalty. And this had trended down, this has trended down over time and is largely gone. However, there was another force at work. Uh, as we just said, men tend to get more active in the workplace when they have children at home, and this tended to push up the earnings of fathers. This was the fatherhood wage premium. I see. And that still exists. So overall, parenthood still widens the gender wage gap, but the main channel is now through the earnings of fathers, the premium they receive. Uh, a premium they receive even in comparison with other men who don't have children at home. 
And we talked about age being an important factor here when it comes to the the pay gap. Uh, Women workers between 25 and 34 years of age, their earnings are a lot closer to men's wages uh, compared to women overall. Why is Mm -hmm. that? So this is a time when they don't have children at home, largely speaking. Um, So if you look at the when women are most likely to have young children at home, that happens around age 35 to 44, when about two-thirds of them have young children at home. And it's the same time when men are also most likely to have young children at home. So we have the forces of parenthood impacting women most at around age 35. And that's when we see the largest increase in the gender pay gap. They start closer to parity with men, but then parenthood and family needs to take over in their mid-30s. And it seems like they never quite recover thereafter. Uh, It's not like a U-shape where they dip Mm -hmm. for a while and then come back. So you see this widening of the gender wage gap, which remains in place. And Mm -hmm. this is a pattern we've seen repeatedly. If you look at women uh, who were 25 to 34 in 1980, compare their track with women who were 25 to 34 in 2010, you see the same thing happening. Around the time they turn 35, the pay gap goes up. Once women workers uh, are no longer taking care of young children, right, once they've aged a bit, do their earnings go up? Is that what we're also seeing? Um, They do not go up. Like I said, it's the pay gap sort of flattens out. I see. So it's Uh, So it's no longer widening, but it's not narrowing either. And uh, so uh, there's a career break, an interruption that happens that has longer-term implications. And is this impacting all women the same, or are women of certain backgrounds and ethnicities being impacted differently? Can you talk about that? Um, Well, so broadly speaking, you know, leaving aside the effects of parenthood or age and so on, there is a distinct effect of race and ethnicity. If you compare uh, black women or Hispanic women, uh, compare them to the earnings of white men, they experience a larger wage gap than white women do or Asian women do. And now some of this does have to do with an education gap. Um, if you look at what share of women are college graduates, uh, black and Hispanic women are less likely to be college graduates than white and Asian um, women and white men uh, who they are being compared to. And some of it may have to do with discrimination in the workplace, mm-hmm. which is much harder to pin down. Um, you know, we don't directly observe it or quantify it, but there's a lot of research out there that does uh, show that discrimination is present in various forms, whether it's gender or race ethnicity or uh, against the disabled workers and so on and so forth. Uh, So these are twin factors at play for Black and Hispanic women. Yeah. Well, before you go, Rakesh, I mean, based on what you've uncovered, what would you say has to happen on a systemic level? to close this gap? So right now it looks like what's, you know, you still need to do two things or uh, things have to happen, as you say. You know, 
there are still these gaps in occupations and labor market experience uh, that, if they closed further, would push the labor, uh, the gender gap, uh, narrow it down. But then there are these decisions, social norms, cultural norms that have to change at the individual and at the family level. Um, I will quote you one researcher, um, you know, who's a leading expert in this field, mm -hmm. uh, Claudia Golden. Uh, she says eliminating the gender earnings gap will require changes in millions of households and thousands of individual workplaces. So it's not some yeah. sweeping thing that change that could be mandated or um, implemented. Uh, it's going to take some time and some individual mm -hmm. work. Right. That is Rakesh Kuchar from the Pew Research Center. Thank you so much. You're welcome.